It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So, episode 12 in a series uh, called The Spiritual Lessons from Alfred the Great. Uh, we sort of left uh, the last episode hanging uh, in the balance. So it was one of those things like, and we all have to come back and find out what happens next. We were in, uh, it's May 6th of 878 AD, and uh, evil has swept over the island of Britain. The Viking invasion is in full swing 13 years into it, and there doesn't look like there's any hope. But there is a glimmer of it, and his name is Alfred. He is king of Wessex, which is the one nation out of the seven uh, that is the Heptarchy, which is what it was called in the island of Britain at the time. And he is maintaining his ground. He refuses to leave. He refuses to back down, which is part of the beauty and the power of the last episode uh, that we uh, described, the clash of shield walls. It is, I mean, oh, just stirs me at the deepest levels as a man, because that's what I want to do. I want to defy the enemy's uh, territorial uh, gain in my life. I want to push back. I want to say no. I want to say all of this belongs to Jesus. And you're going to see Alfred with that same passion. He's the rightful king of Wessex, but it has been taken from him from a very evil man, a guy that when you hear his name, it's almost like the equivalent of you know, Ahab and Jezebel in the Old Testament, where you just sort of feel the darkness oozing off of him. And his name is Guthrum, and he's one of the kings of the Vikings. And he has taken the estate of Chippenham, which was where Alfred was uh, for, for his Christmas uh, they, his Christmas holiday season when uh, Guthrum came swooping in and there was a betrayal in the ranks of Alfred's men, which is unheard of in Anglo-Saxon society. Remember when Wolfair actually uh, sold out and sided with Guthrum, and as a result, uh, Alfred had no ability to communicate with his, uh, with his thanes and to call the Ferd system to battle. Uh, and so as a result, he lost his kingdom, and now he's in hiding He's been there for two months on this swamp island known as Athelney, but he is going to rise up, and in such an amazing fashion, in the way only a movie can show, he is going to actually put together this whole secret network of communication and call together his third system and actually attack, and that's called the Battle of Eddington, and it's going to take place on Pentecost very purposely. Alfred is going to say this is the day that God gave power to uh, his people, and so we're going to say that's exactly what we need, and we're going to take that power, and we're going to drive out this evil. The Viking symbol of what it is is so evil that it is palpable. Sometimes the evil that we fight is not as clear and can sometimes uh, masquerade as good, and that's oftentimes what happens when things be- get termed politically correct is it can sound good when it's actually a cloak for evil. And so sometimes it's easier when you can just unveil the evil and just show it for what it is. Like Hitler was pretty easy to know to stand against. Uh, Stalin, pretty easy to know to stand against. Uh, Guthrum, yeah, pretty easy to know to stand against. Some of the evil that we are dealing with today, our Viking invasion, is not as clear to us, and we need wisdom and discernment uh, to know how to deal with it. This message is called The Pursuit of Guthrum, and 
uh, it has a double meaning to it, as you will see as we unfurl this. This is a uh, this was originally going to be one message, and I think I've split it into three. The last, this message and the previous two all were originally going to be one. And as I've gotten into it, I've gotten so excited about it. I don't know if you guys have been able to figure that out, but this has like stirred me at a very, very deep level. And this is, it's building towards something. The next two, this one and the one that follows, are so utterly profound to me that I have a tough time with descriptors. It's like, I don't even know what to call it. And I feel like I'm failing you in naming it something just like the pursuit of Guthrum. It's like, oh, that doesn't quite say it. It is so good, but you know, I'm lacking words for it. We have an evil man and he needs to be purged out of this territory. What he has done and how he has brought such vile behavior to the land of Wessex, this Christian community, and he has pillaged, raped, kidnapped, just destroyed everything. He hates Christianity, and he wants every symbol of it, anyone who would dare espouse it, to be destroyed. Okay, that's not healthy, right? And so you could understand why Alfred would want to purge this, why he would want to go after it and get it out of town. So where did we leave off? Do you guys remember this? It was uh, the clash of shield walls. So I'll just read our final quote. Dr. Merkel says, with one last shout, Alfred, the ring giver of Wessex, urged his men to be true to their vows and fired their hearts with courage as the Saxon line braced for the coming impact. Across the shrinking gap between the two armies, the last of the Viking taunts and the various pagan invocations of Odin swirled in the air and soon turned into one indiscernible, gore-hungry, red-faced, maniacal shriek. In that deafening roar of blood-curdling shouting and horrific howling, the two shield walls crashed into one another. Oh no, what's going to happen? You see, up until this point, Alfred has lost eight straight battles. There's only been one victory in the last 13 years over the Vikings, and for most people, they would say it was an accident. Do you remember that when uh, Alfred's brother, who at that time was the king, prayed a little longer than he should have, and they were supposed to meet at a point in battle, and instead he was late? And that so surprised the Vikings, it took them off guard, and it actually turned the, the Battle of Ashdown into a victory. Great story. And I mean, I love that story. However, in hindsight, you're looking back going, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe that was all an accident, because eight straight losses... And now the two shield walls are going to clash. The Pursuit of Guthrum, Part 1. The lamb sprinting out into the field of battle to take down the wolf pack. That's about what this is. And how crazy would it be for a lamb to go shooting out into the field of battle to take on a pack of wolves? That's about what's happening here. Alfred has no shot. You know, if you were to look at it statistically, he has a small band of men around him, and Guthrum is possibly one of the stoutest, strongest military forces in the world at this exact time. And so who in their right mind? He's fortified in, and Alfred has nothing. But he has a secret communication system, and he has a lot of loyalists that have been hiding. And he is going to call on them. They are going to gather at Egbert's stone. And he is going to shock Guthrum with the amount of loyalty that he possesses in his people. Men and women that are willing to stand against all of Guthrum's threats and taunts and stand with Alfred in such an hour. The Battle of Eddington, May 6th, 878. Pentecost. 
Dr. Merkel says the battle raged on well into the afternoon after both sides had already paid dearly. By the way, I'm going to shorten this dramatically because my point isn't just the Battle of Eddington, even though you do need to know how it turns out. Because some of you are just like, I have no idea. Are they going to win or lose? I mean, this is, this is, this is uh, you know, it's killing me, Eric. As both shield walls became severely depleted by the casualties of the combat, and as an intense exhaustion began to weigh the fatigued warriors down, it was clear that the determining factor of the battle would be a simple matter of discovering who had more endurance. At some point late in the afternoon, the ferocity of the Viking assault began to flag and lose its bite. They did not care for the land of Wessex nearly as much as the men of Wessex. And so, in the end, they were not able to outlast the determination and passion of the shield wall Alfred commanded. You guys starting to feel the swell of enthusiasm here? Finally, the Viking shield wall broke, and the full fury of the Anglo-Saxon warriors poured through the Viking ranks with a wild ferocity. So, the pursuit of Guthrum, part two. So, what we see is, the pursuit of Guthrum, part one, is he's on an island called Athelney. He has no shot at it in the world. Why would he even try this? But he is going to actually rise up and go after the, hunt, the hunted is going to turn into the hunter. I mean, it's an incredible story. And now we're going to go to part two of it. Unrelenting in the fight until the full victory is gained. Out of those eight losses that Alfred has sustained in a row, there were multiple times when the Anglo-Saxon shield wall won and broke through the Vikings, and the Vikings ran. But the Anglo-Saxon army, or Alfred's army, didn't pursue them. Or they pursued them, but not to the full extent as they should have. And this is one of those lessons that is baked deep into the history of Alfred that is actually going to be for the history of like all of Great Britain from this point forward, is going to catch this idea that when you win, you have to win completely. Because over and over, the, the Vikings would reform their line, and here is the jubilant celebrating uh, Saxon army that is now going to be taken out and end up losing the day because they stopped short of a full victory. Dr. Merkel says, at this point, it was clear that the Firds of Wessex had put the Danish army to root, and they began to feel again the old temptation to relax their attack. You ever had that old temptation to relax your attack? It is hard to rise up from your island of Athelney and strike in the first place. You know, to gather that, that your soul together to, to say the no and to, and to actually say, I refuse to accept what the enemy's doing in my life. And in the authority of Christ, I'm pushing back. That's a lot. But then to push and to push and to push and to push until it is completely eradicated from your life, oh, you just start to get tired somewhere along there. It's like, Eric, could we have a few less pushes in there? Do we have to go all the way? And the point is, yes. Have you not learned from Alfred? You see, he has learned. And so in this situation, he's learned a lot. In those eight losses, he learned far more than in eight victories. It's like, why do I keep losing this? I have stronger men. My men are more determined to defend their land than the Vikings are to take it. So why do we keep losing? So... They begin to feel that, again, the old temptation to relax their attack, to turn away from the bloody battle, to nurse their own wounds, and begin enjoying their victory. But Alfred had learned the hard way, how failing to press on, even after a clear victory, could easily turn the tide of the battle against him. 
the king who once earned for himself the title the wild boar for his rampaging combat at the Battle of Ashdown was unrelenting in his attack. He fought on fiercely and unrelentingly. Once the enemy had been driven entirely from the battlefield, Alfred ordered the Saxon forces to chase the Danes who had escaped. In each of our lives, we're going to have moments where we want to set down the sword. And if you've ever had any point where you know that God has given you an assignment, when he's given you either a soul to go after, he's given you something to stand for, there is a point in the battle where it looks like you have victory and you're, you have a great temptation to set down your weaponry. If there, there's some of my, my, my heroes in the past, I think it was the booths that are popping into my mind specifically right now, uh, William and Catherine in the uh, early Salvation Army days, is that they would not just pray for the big meeting, but then after the meeting, they would wake up early the next day, even though they might have gotten to bed at two in the morning, and they would continue to pray for the seeds that were planted. Because they know that right after those seeds are planted, the enemy wants to come in and steal them. Very few of us think that way. We're just like so happy that the seeds are planted. And as a result, we can't figure out why so much of it is robbed. But it's pursuing until. Dr. Merkel continues, once more the roles had reversed, I love this quote, and Alfred was again the hunter, tracking his prey in the wilds of Wessex. Guthrum was the prey, slinking silently through the night back to the safety of his stronghold in Chippenham. Now remember, we're dealing with a very bad guy here. This guy has lied straight to the face of Alfred multiple times, broken oaths. Remember, Alfred pays him the Dane Geld, he leaves and then comes right back. It's like paying the Dane Geld is an oath, it's a transaction of promise. It's like, I give you this, you leave. And then he sneaks in on a Christian holiday and takes him. And Guthrum has brought evil to this land, this territory. He has harmed his very thanes and nobles. He slit their throats, the ones that he entrusted to him as hostages. Remember, transfer hostages so that we would both keep our, our vows and our oaths. And to Alfred, an oath is everything. It's the entire character of a man. And so the character of Guthrum is in the toilet as far as Alfred would be concerned. Okay, so his entire perception of this man is vulgar, pagan, heathen, barbaric, I mean, everything that would be a negative word would be the entire mindset Alfred would have towards Guthrum and his men. The Pursuit of Guthrum, part three. So now Guthrum is going to make his way back to Chippenham. Remember, this is like his throne. This was Alfred's place, but now Guthrum has it. So they're going to lay siege on Chippenham. And it's going to last two weeks, and they're literally going to be starving them out. So within the walls of Chippenham, the scene began to look desperate. The Viking strength had been cut to ribbons at the Battle of Eddington. The few surviving warriors who managed to return from the slaughter were wounded and exhausted. The reserve troops that Guthrum had kept behind at Chippenham were too few to resist the Saxon throng outside the gate. And if the predicament of the Danes was not already dire, the Chippenham fortress had just begun to reach the end of its winter stores. As the harvest was still many months away and the fortress had not yet been sufficiently supplied to hold out for any length of time. 
So Winston Churchill weighs in on this, and he says, Guthrum, king of the Viking army, so lately master of the one unconquered English kingdom, found himself penned in his camp. So we're at a very historic moment in history where you'll hear a lot of great British uh, men who will look back on this time and, and talk about what's about to happen. Okay, you have a situation where the tide is turning in the history of the nation. Up until this point, it looked as if this was now going to be a Viking island. There is no possible way that you could push these guys out. And suddenly, something is turning right before our eyes. We're like, are you serious? Could you imagine what the newspaper article would have looked like? Alfred shocks Guthrum. I mean, there's no way. Guthrum didn't have this one figured into the plans. Now he's stuck in Chippenham, surrounded, and he's starving. And he has no hope. And Alfred finds himself in a very unique position. How many times have you heard the Vikings beg for mercy uh, since we started this series? We have a very, very unusual situation that's about to happen here. So uh, Bishop Asser, who is the, the friend of Alfred, who's going to write his biography, which is called The Life of King Alfred, said the heathen, terrified by hunger, cold, and fear, and at, last, and, and at the last full of despair, begged for peace. Could you imagine actually Guthrum begging? I mean, this is like a, a rare situation. Winston Churchill says, Guthrum offered to give without return as many hostages as Alfred should care to pick and, to depart, and, and then to depart forthwith. I'm out of here. I'll never come back. You can take as many of my men as you want. Just let me go. Okay, still self-centered to the very end, by the way. It's not like take me and let my men go. No, it's like take as many of my men as you want and let me go. Okay, I don't know. Do you guys like Guthrum? Uh, he, he's deserving of a few rounds of booze, isn't he? Dr. Merkel says, the Battle of Eddington had suddenly reduced Guthrum to groveling for his life. Okay, now the reason I'm milking this is because what's about to happen, you guys just don't know yet what's about to happen. You think you do. You think, you know, you, you're like trying to fill in blanks, but this is like so shocking to me when I was studying the history of this that it literally took my breath away. I was like, no way. I mean, it is so unusual. I, I don't have words for it. Alfred's creative options. So let's put ourselves in Alfred's shoes. He's in a difficult situation because he has to set precedent here. The Vikings, when they take a king, and when that king is groveling, well, they've had a simple pattern for how they deal with it, okay? They capture the king, and then to make a statement to all the other kings, they're going to sacrifice him unto their gods, Okay, so the god Odin is typically the one they will sacrifice him to. And I didn't go into any details about what that sacrifice is, but let it suffice to say it is so utterly demonic and disgusting that it's unspeakable in this room. Okay, that, we'll just leave it at that. And that's how the Vikings have handled the kings that they capture. Alfred is now capturing a king of the Vikings. What is he going to do? So... Let's go through some creative options. Do unto Guthrum as the Vikings had done to the other Saxon kings and make it a spectacle. Let that be a statement to all the other Viking kings. You come into this territory and this is how we'll treat you if we capture you. It's like strike some fear in them. I mean, doesn't that make sense? That's how the Vikings work. 
but is that how Alfred is going to do it? Of course, you could probably guess. I wouldn't be overly impressed with the story if Alfred's going to behave as a Viking. How about this one? Force Guthrum to pay the Danegeld. Uh, we might need to rename it, but, or um, the Saxgeld. In other words, make him pay all of his wealth. You give me everything you have, Guthrum, not just what you have on you, but everything you have. Little stowed away in you know, little holes around. I want all of it. I want all of your wealth. You see, that's what the Vikings do. The Vikings are all about wealth and power. So take their wealth and power. I mean, that makes sense. How about this one? Starve him and give him no reprieve. Just keep the siege going and he will writhe in his, unto death. I mean, he has no hope, right? Just let him die a slow, painful death. Let him experience the full impact of his sin. These are just some creative options. I'm just laying them out on the table because this is what a king has to go through in this situation. This is an odd, unusual situation for a Saxon king to have. I'm actually in a power position against a Viking, and the Vikings have made this entire island miserable, have killed tens of thousands of our people, have raped most of our women, and I'm just going to you know, turn a blind eye to this? This is an opportunity to make a statement back to all the world and all the Vikings that are looking on. Alfred makes a statement. It is right here that something strange happens in history. You guys notice that I'm milking this to its fullest extent? <laughs> this will teach you not to study history before you come here. It's like, this is like you could have studied this all up before you even came here. The Pursuit of Guthrum, Part 4. The extraordinary decision to pursue Guthrum in a way no one expected. He's going to pursue Guthrum. Dr. Merkel says it this way. If this Guthrum were to be treated as the Viking kings had previously treated their conquered foes, if this humble Danish king were to receive measure for measure, he would be cruelly executed before the Saxon troops for their evening's entertainment, and all the captured Viking soldiers would be quickly beheaded. Alfred was determined to make his victory clear to the vanquished Dane in terms that the Vikings would understand, but he also wanted to set a new example with this victory. Should we just stop there? Uh, isn't this good? Aren't you guys, I see, I'm, you're trying to, I'm trying to get you to lean in a little more. You're not leaning in as much as you should be. Just as Ivar and Halfdan, sons of the evil Ragnar Lothbrok, had once sacrificed the conquered King El to the god and the barbaric to their god in the barbaric blood eagle ceremony, Alfred insisted that Guthrum must likewise be given over to the god of his conquerors. Okay, do you follow his logic? Okay, so you gave the kings of Britain over to your gods. I'm going to give you over to my god. This is, his, this is his logic. This is his final decision. As he's been thinking about it, it's like, you know what? I'm going to give you over to my god. If Guthrum refused Alfred's terms of surrender, the doom of the Viking soldiers was certain, and they would never leave Chippenham alive. Rather than the sadistic human sacrifice that Odin required, that's the god of the Vikings, however, Alfred insisted that Guthrum be handed over to the Christian god by the bloodless ceremony of baptism. <laughs> the Vikings could go free from Chippenham if Guthrum was given to the triune god of Christianity through Christian baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is what Alfred demanded of Guthrum. Not only was Guthrum required to take Alfred's God as his own, 
but King Alfred was to stand as Guthrum's new godfather at this christening. Guthrum accepted Alfred's terms immediately and swore to Alfred that he would honor the terms of this treaty, offering to Alfred his pick of the surviving Danish nobleman for hostages to guarantee this vow. Is it right to give a lying Viking another chance? You see, the dubious ones of us in here are going to say, he's not going to mean it. See, some, I caught some of you. It was in your head, right? He's not going to mean it. Is there a reason why you would think that? I mean, you've never even seen Guthrum face to face, but you almost feel like you know his bad breath. It's like this guy lies for a living. Do you actually think, Alfred, are you so gullible as to think that he isn't playing you once again? All right? I'm just going to let that hang in the air, but your answer to this question is very telling because, in a sense, you're a lion viking that God gave another chance to. You see, all of us fall in the Guthrum position in this story, and we shouldn't be given mercy. We should be destroyed. We are deserving of judgment, and all of us lean in when we see Guthrum captured in this situation. He deserves what he gets. And yet, Alfred is going to show something that is so foreign to the flow of war history. I mean, it's just like, I, I don't have a, a place to put it. You know, we've seen people in the church context, like missionaries and everything, show mercy. I mean, they're, they're great stories. But in a governmental sense like this, nation against nation, to show such extreme mercy is like, you don't even know what to do with it, and you feel vulnerable. It's like Wessex is vulnerable if they let this guy live. Kill him. Kill him now. That's not what Alfred is going to come to. He's going to give an offer and say, you be given over to my God in baptism, which to the Anglo-Saxons is a vow. It's a covenant commitment unto God. And uh, he's going to have 30 of his men come with him. And we will let the rest go, and I'll let you go free, too. Okay, now, as I'm going to unpack this even uh, on Monday, it gets even more extraordinary than this, but I'm going to keep it at this level right now just so you can try and wrap your mind around it. Is it right to give a lion Viking another chance? Dr. Merkel says, certainly Alfred had good reason to be suspicious of oaths taken by Danes. He had already seen the Vikings break countless vows. Vows made before the Christian God, vows made to their own gods, even vows made with Viking hostages given as guarantees. None of these had proved sure. How could Alfred think that Guthrum would suddenly begin to respect the vow of Christian baptism? I mean, it's a good, good question. And isn't it interesting, you know, that... This is a similar tension that exists just in coming to Christianity. Could you imagine if you were to evaluate each one of us according to the same standard and say, but how do we have any confidence that they are going to mean it? Right now, they're in a desperate situation. They're turning to God. Okay, and they're crying out for mercy. Should God not give it to them because there's a chance that they may not follow through? It's a very interesting tension that is awakened in and through this story because it exposes something in us. When I was first reading it, I'm like, oh, come on, Alfred, take him out, and I'm a merciful guy. Guthrum's different. Guthrum's like, 
Hitler. It's like Stalin. It falls into a different category. Get rid of him when you got a chance. James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you have an opportunity to give mercy or you have an opportunity to give judgment, if you're going to function according to the kingdom of heaven, you always specialize in mercy. And that's the one thing you can always know about your God in heaven. He specializes in mercy before judgment. As I said a few weeks ago on a Sunday, God gives mercy, and then he 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 gives mercy. If all of the mercy is not received, it's rejected, judgment will come. However, he specializes in giving mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Winston Churchill in staring at this situation of how he is going to respond to Guthrum. So this is quite a few years later, right? He's staring back at this like, whoa. This sublime power to rise above the whole force of circumstances, to remain unbiased by the extremes of victory or defeat, to persevere in the teeth of disaster, to greet returning fortune with a cool eye, to have faith in men after repeated betrayals, raises Alfred far above the turmoil of barbaric wars to his pinnacle of deathless glory. Winston Churchill's rather impressed. We'll just put it that way. If some of you are like, I don't understand anything Winston Churchill says. I love Winston Churchill's writings. I'm so, in, in, it, it stirs me, but I, I understand. They're not as easy to understand as everything else. The principle of especially them. Should you so, show mercy to a lying Viking? Here, the, the concept of Scripture is going to basically say it this way, especially them. You see, there is something about the gospel that goes to those that fall into the especially them category because the mercy of God is seen with even greater luster when it is given in a situation like this. It feels like a tremendous risk, and yet the entire cross is that. The givenness of the shed blood of Jesus is that. So the brand of love that God has shed abroad in our hearts has been made available to us especially for such as these. These men and women are empty, hurting, lost, and dying. Christ's blood was shed for them. Would we be willing to shed our blood for them as well? You see, that category of especially them whether or not you have anyone in your life that falls into the category of especially them, usually we do, we just don't like to acknowledge that we have a list, of people that really are at a heightened level of challenge for us. And yet you've been given love. You've been given mercy from the throne room of grace. And God wants to just remind you today that it's, it's especially for them. That's where I want you to spend it. In fact, when you spend it in that direction, you are revealing the kingdom of heaven at an even a greater level. The extraordinary risk of mercy. When you give mercy, there's a risk involved in it because someone could take advantage of it. When you forgive, someone could then go back and do the same thing. It's, it seems like the weak man's game. To, Alfred could appear weak in this story instead of heroic. He could. Depends on the glasses you're wearing. 
If you're looking at it from world leader lens, you're like, kill Guthrum, take him out. I'm just saying, I'm just a king in you know, mercy, and I'm saying, get rid of the guy. Don't let him have an inch. He doesn't deserve it. But none of us do. In other words, how we meddy out the mercy is very, very important. It's sort of like when Jesus says, if you don't forgive, then the Father can't forgive you. To the degree that we give mercy, that mercy flows into our life. And so we are a flow-through channel. If we begin to cap it and say, well, I refuse to give mercy in this situation, then in a sense we are setting up to turn off the gate valve of mercy to our own life. God has given us the opportunity to give mercy, to show love, to forgive even the worst of sinners. Romans 5, 7 through 8, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still Guthrum, Christ died for us. When we were still in a position of animosity towards him, he died for us. Nullifying the power of darkness with the triumph of grace. What, I'm, what I witness in this story with Alfred is so shocking. Not, not that I've never seen mercy and forgiveness and these things. It's, it's something about it at the, on the world stage, at this level, nations, that I'm going to witness Alfred actually practicing what he knows to be true in, in the Bible. And he is going to exercise it. He is going to, first of all, rise up to pursue Guthrum at the Battle of Eddington. That's like so profound to me. And that's what the last message was, where I am, as a Christian man, standing back going, whatever that guy has, I want it. And then he is going to break through the perseverance that is needed in the shield wall. He's going to stand at the front of the shield wall. He is going to be part of that picture of endurance that is going to press and press and press and press until finally you break through the Viking line. Then, even though he's totally exhausted, he is going to challenge himself and his men to pursue the Vikings until they are defeated. And then he is going to lay siege for two weeks. Imagine just how tired he already is. He has to maintain that intensity and keep pressing. And he finally has Guthrum. All he needs to do is squeeze. And in that moment, he pursues Guthrum. He pursues his soul. That is one of the strangest things. It's such a turn in the story that it shocks Eric Ludi as I'm going through it. I'm like, are you serious? He's actually pursuing the soul of Guthrum? In war, you don't pursue the soul of the other guy? I mean, that's just not what you do. You kill them. That's just classic warfare. And yet, what we recognize is the same thing that Alfred is seeing there, is our battle is not against flesh and blood. This man has never heard the good news of Jesus. He has grown up in a pagan nation. This is all he's ever known. I still remember uh, Richard Wormbrandt. He, was, he suffered in prison because of Nikolai Ceausescu, an evil man who was ruling the communist leader over Romania. And they, they had captured Nikolai Ceausescu, and they were going to do the worst to him. So they were trying to figure out what they could do to torture him the way he had tortured their country. 
And Richard Wormbrand, I think, still being in prison, is going to make a plea to say, show him mercy. Here, of course, Richard Wormbrand has been tortured in for who knows how long, how many years, because of this man, and he's going to say, show him mercy. He's like a little child who never had a father. He never understood the truth. He's never tasted mercy and grace. Give it to him now. I don't think they gave it to him. But that's the interesting response flowing out of a man imprisoned. And when I heard that, I was like, okay, circle that. Whatever is happening inside of Richard Wimbrandt right there, I need that. Because I'm human, like all the rest of us, my tendency is to starve him out and get rid of him because he has created great havoc for the people of Wessex. Especially, you know, hey, that's my position of authority. Let's, let's follow this through. That's my job as a warrior. You're first and foremost a Christian. We represent King Jesus in all that we do. Romans 5, 7 through 8, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This incredible picture of redemption that we see, of course, many of us are familiar with that scripture, but it's this idea that all that Guthrum has meant for evil, all of this Viking invasion, at any point, God can turn this because this is what God does. God turns what the enemy is meaning for evil into good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And what you're going to see in this story is everything, all of these symbols of suffering and difficulty are suddenly going to turn. Dr. Merkel says, with the battle of Eddington won and the army of Guthrum decisively conquered, it would seem that the time for Alfred to begin his celebrations had come. Surely this hard-won peace deserved a great feast in the mead hall of one of Alfred's great royal estates. But the Anglo-Saxon historian describing Alfred's victory speaks of no celebrations until three weeks after Guthrum's acceptance of Alfred's terms. When the Christian king led the pagan Guthrum and the 30 of the Viking king's most trusted noblemen to a small church in the village of Aller to receive the sacrament of baptism. If you just imagine this scene. So there is no, no celebrations yet because what Alfred is after Remember how I used the term in a different message? He's frying bigger fish. The rest of the nation is just like, but we won. And Alfred's like, not yet. Not yet. Wait. What, what are you waiting for? We won. We've defeated the Vikings. Not yet. There's something more I'm after. He's after Guthrum. He wants to see this realized in Guthrum. Full scope. The choice of the seemingly insignificant church at Aller for this ceremony may seem at first difficult to explain. One would expect Alfred to choose a church whose size and splendor would impress upon Guthrum the greatness of Alfred's kingdom and the glory of his reign. It would seem to make more sense for Alfred to have conducted this ceremony in the royal city of Winchester, where Alfred could have overwhelmed Guthrum with his own majesty and kingliness. Instead, Alfred chose the very humble village church of Aller, a modest church constructed of wood rather than stone set deep in the remote wilds of Wessex. Okay, guys, you guys ready for this next screen? This is good. Aller sits just a short walk to the east of Athelney. Remember the island, the swamp island? 
in the midst of the wastelands that had provided Alfred with shelter throughout his desperate winter exile. It was at this meager shack of a church that Alfred had worshipped as a hunted fugitive. For some reason, he felt a strong urge to share the scenery of his banishment with the Viking king, with the Viking who had until recently hunted him. Perhaps he wanted to show Guthrum the landscape of his exile, pointing out where he had hidden as the Danish troops scoured the countryside for him. Or perhaps, having spent countless hours in prayer in the ramshackle church of Aller, begging God for deliverance from the Viking invasion, now Alfred felt a strong pull to bring Guthrum back to this very church in acknowledgement that those prayers were being answered in this baptism. I mean, that, that's pretty special to me. This is the place where he prayed for deliverance. And now, the very one who was hunting him is coming back to be surrendered to his God. I know it sounds strange, but that's what it is. He is being surrendered before the God of Alfred, Jehovah God, who just happens to be Jesus Christ. Visiting our king's place of suffering, the Spirit of God will bring us there to see. So there's something in the kingdom of heaven which parallels this. Those that are enemies with God, us, are going to be pursued by the Holy Spirit. Though we are undeserving, our God is after us. If there was one human on earth that all of us could probably agree does not deserve the mercy in this situation, it would be Guthrum. And yet Guthrum is pursued by Alfred. And if there was ever a guy who had reason to destroy a man, it would be Alfred destroying Guthrum. You see, Alfred is going to go through great suffering. He is going to be betrayed, and he is going to spend two of the most difficult months any man has ever experienced in this place of exile, in this place of pain and suffering. And this church is sort of this symbol of it. The cross is the symbol of our Christ's, our King, the King of Heaven's suffering. And what the Spirit of God will do is he will bring us, just as Alfred is bringing Guthrum, he brings us to the cross so that we would see it. I know that sounds funny, but that's historically how it's been described. And Christians throughout the ages have said something akin to this. I saw the cross. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you, what do you mean you saw the cross? I saw it. It's like I understand it now. I recognize that that was for me. I, I beheld his sufferings. I saw them. I mean, it's hard to know how to describe it because you didn't see it with these eyes. You saw it with the eyes of faith. I saw his resurrection. I saw the empty tomb. I saw the glorified Christ. Well, did you see him with your eyes? How did you do that? Did you get on some tour bus and, and go see these things? How did you see it? And yet if you ask me, Eric, have you seen the cross? I have. And that might be bewildering at a certain level. It's like, wait a minute. Wait, wait. Yeah, I, just, I had a king that brought me to a little church in the wilds of Wessex and showed me where he suffered. And that's where he interceded for me. And why he would pursue me, why he did this for me is hard to even grasp. But I've seen it. So, Reese Howells, uh, I, I mean, I named uh, my son Reese after Reese Howells. Uh, his life is 
quite profound. And this is what Reese Howell said. I still remember reading it years and years and years ago, and it's what started me on the journey of saying, okay, God, I want to see it. Because he said, I saw the cross. And then he went on to say, I saw the empty tomb, the resurrected Christ. And then he went on to say, I saw the glorified Christ, high and lifted up. I saw the one under whose feet is all things. It's like, Reese, how did you see this? The same way you and I can see it. It's a revelation of the Spirit of God. He wants to take us by the hand and bring us to that place of understanding. You see, we all need to behold it. No one should have to twist our arm to sing a song about the glory of God and the power of His, his cross work and the glory of His resurrection. Why? They shouldn't have to twist our arm. We've seen it. Remember I talk about if there was a sunset out back behind this uh, chapel. There's a beautiful lake out there and this, you know, the mountains and the, the sun goes down behind it. It's beautiful. And so imagine I you know, poke my face out of the curtain and I see it. I turn around and say, hey guys, let's sing a song. There's a beautiful sunset out there. It'd be very awkward because you'd have to borrow my eyesight on it. It's like, well, tell us about it, Eric. Well, it's like, it's like sort of an orangish pink color and the mountains, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Could you trust me? Let's sing. Oh, how wonderful, how beautiful the sunset is tonight. And that's awkward because you haven't seen it. And a lot of us function in our Christianity with a borrowed information about what happened at the cross, the empty tomb, and where Christ is currently seated. But this is something that the Spirit of God wants to bring you to. So that you, along with me, along with Reese Howells, can say the same thing. I've seen the cross. I've seen the empty tomb. I've seen the place of his suffering. I've seen his position of glory. I understand who it is that has rescued me. And I am awestruck by the fact that the king humbled himself to bless someone like me. Father, this is something we can't work for ourselves any more than Guthrum could work it for himself. We have a king of mercy. We have a king of love. And Lord, it's hard to even grip and grasp the profundity of your mercy, your grace. But Lord, may we taste it today just afresh in and through this story. May we behold how precious it is. Lord, that the place of your suffering has become the place of new birth. Lord, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us in a greater way. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.